You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 61 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. William Hammond, named by President Lincoln as Surgeon General of the Army in 1862, later on in his life, said that the Civil War was fought during what he described as, quote, the end of the medical Middle Ages, end quote. That's because when the war was fought, an understanding of germ theory was still a decade away, and so thousands of soldiers died not from their wounds, but from infections or gangrene that developed later. And that wasn't the worst of it. The greatest menace to Civil War soldiers wasn't enemy fire or even infection of their wounds. No, the biggest threat to Civil War soldiers was preventable diseases. Sadly, the vast majority of Union and Confederate field fatalities were caused by these diseases that swept through camps and hospitals. An estimated three out of five Northern dead and two out of three deaths among Southern soldiers were caused by preventable diseases such as dysentery, typhoid fever, pneumonia, tuberculosis, and even what we think of as childhood ailments like measles and whooping cough. Riding home, soldiers often remarked that they didn't fear the big battles as much as being taken to a hospital where they would be exposed to killers they couldn't see and didn't understand. You see, the state of medical knowledge at the time of the Civil War had no useful, effective treatment for most of the illnesses Rich mentioned a minute ago, so it was often the case that a sick soldier either recovered on his own or died. So really, it's little wonder that many soldiers preferred to remain out of the clutches of doctors. All right, so with this topic, with the medical aspects of the Civil War, what we're going to do is divide it up between two episodes. With this show, we're going to look at the illness and disease side of it, and then we'll use the next episode to discuss what happened after a soldier was wounded on the battlefield. And since neither Tracy nor I are medical doctors, our goal here is really just to give you guys some basic, easily understandable information about the medical issues that affected Civil War soldiers. And we'll let you know right up front that since we knew next to nothing about all of this, we'll be relying pretty heavily on what we think is an invaluable resource. It's the Encyclopedia of Civil War Medicine, by Glenna Schroeder Lane. And this book is just clearly organized and very readable, and at least to us, seems to be the authoritative source on the subject. And really, we'll even go so far as to say that your Civil War library is incomplete without it. 
As we mentioned in the introduction, diseases rather than wounds were the number one killer of Civil War soldiers. During the conflict, coping with the staggering scope of disease was an especially difficult task since the state of medical science at the time was more medieval than modern. For example, pharmacology, that is the use of drugs for medicinal purposes, was primitive and largely homeopathic. And according to WebMD, homeopathic medicine uh, views symptoms of illness as normal responses of the body as it attempts to regain health. So homeopathy is based on the idea that like cures like. Uh, This is the belief uh, that based on the symptom, giving the sick person a substance that provokes the same reaction may cure the illness. So for example, if the patient was vomiting, a Civil War doctor would actually give him something that induced even more vomiting. Or if the patient had diarrhea, he would be given essentially a strong laxative to, well, you know. Right. So pharmacology in the Civil War era was largely homeopathic, except for several outright poisons, such as mercury. And then, unfortunately, modern antibiotics remained over a half century away, and also heat sterilization to eradicate disease-causing biological contaminants was unknown. So really, it's little wonder that men hid all but the direst illnesses from physicians. Civil War soldiers understood that to come under a doctor's care was to tempt fate, with the odds stacked against you. It's sad to realize that during the course of the war, diseases caused ten times the number of deaths as wounds. So let's dive into this. And a starting point might be to point out that for both federal and Confederate armies, the most common and sinister complaint was chronic diarrhea or dysentery. And with this, doctors back then didn't really clearly define their choice of terms, so we're mainly going to just stick with dysentery, uh, really so that we don't have to say the word diarrhea a zillion times. But anyway, Union medical records show as many as 641 cases of dysentery per 1,000 troops per year. And even this rather astounding number is thought to be too low, since many soldiers with the condition didn't bother to report to sick call, and even if they did go to get some medicine, they weren't counted unless they were sick enough to be hospitalized. But many Civil War soldiers frequently referred to suffering episodes of this in their letters and diaries, often using such slang terms as Virginia Quickstep or Tennessee Trots. And dysentery was no respecter of persons, Uh, everyone, regardless of rank, from generals to privates, was likely to suffer at least several bouts a year. Dysentery could last for weeks, months, or even years, and Rich used the word sinister a minute ago to describe it because it severely weakened the sufferer. And there were a variety of causes of dysentery. Poor sanitation was a major factor. Especially early in the war, recently assembled armies were likely to have improperly dug and inappropriately located latrines, and then all too many army camps early in the war were also filthy with garbage and heaps of manure. Needless to say, all of this could pollute the water supply and just in general contaminate the whole area. Another major cause of dysentery was spoiled or improperly cooked rations. 
That was mostly because most men who joined the army were pretty useless cooks. You see, cooking back in the olden days was considered woman's work, and most soldiers simply had no previous experience with food preparation. And soldiers also had limited access to cooking utensils, usually a tin cup and plate, perhaps a frying pan or pot they shared with several other men, and they often weren't scrupulous about cleaning these items. So contaminated utensils, spoiled food, and poorly prepared food all contributed to the persistent diarrhea which most Civil War soldiers frequently, if not continuously, suffered. As Tracy said, contaminated water also contributed to dysentery. Tracy mentioned how water in camp could be polluted, but then, especially when they were on the march, soldiers collected water from whatever sources were available, whether that be streams, wells, or even dirty puddles, depending on how desperate they were. But anyway, many Civil War soldiers suffered permanent, lifelong health problems as a result of food and water-related disease. Dysentery was known as the Old Soldier's Disease, because even many years later, someone could still be suffering from chronic intestinal distress that started back when he was a soldier. And we know none of this is very pleasant to think about, but we're covering it because during the Civil War, dysentery was the leading cause of death from disease in both armies. Union medical records show 288 deaths per 1,000 cases, And then it was also the third highest cause of medical discharges after gunshot wounds and tuberculosis. You know, it's all too easy for us today to romanticize the Civil War, but the ugly reality is that thousands upon thousands of northern and southern soldiers died from chronic diarrhea that caused dehydration, weight loss, weakness, and emaciation. And then many other soldiers who contracted dysentery suffered from it for the rest of their lives, years after the war ended. So, really, not a very glorious picture of war, is it? The medical services of both sides started the Civil War appallingly short of trained doctors and up-to-date medicines and equipment. When the war broke out, the Federal Army had only about a 100 physicians in the rank of surgeon or assistant surgeon, so for example, that meant that at first Manassas, most doctors on the battlefield were regimental surgeons supplied by the states. But at least the North had something to build upon with the Army Medical Bureau, while the Confederate Medical Department had to be built from the ground up, starting with a handful of former Army doctors who sided with the South at the beginning of the war. In the summer of 1861, finding surgeons and assistant surgeons for its army became a high priority for the Confederacy, but unfortunately, neither the Confederate government nor the individual southern states had a mechanism to identify and commission physicians. And here it might be good to take a few minutes to talk about how doctors became doctors back in the olden days, since all the commissioned medical officers in both the Union and Confederate armies would have had similar basic medical training. So doctors in both armies were required to have a degree from a regular medical school, and at those schools, the standard curriculum consisted of seven subjects. Those subjects were 1. Theory and Practice of Medicine, 2. Chemistry, 
three, surgery, four, anatomy, five, pharmacy, six, physiology, and seven, obstetrics and diseases of women and children. Each class was taught in a strictly lecture format, and so, rather alarmingly, students didn't have any hands-on clinical or laboratory experience as part of the required classes. A medical student's primary personal experience with patients came through an apprenticeship to a practicing physician, often back in the student's hometown. There was no set length for these apprentices, but they usually lasted several years. This practice of training through apprenticeship had merit, if the mentor was competent, but it did tend to freeze knowledge into hidebound traditions. For example, there was a lamentable persistence of dubious medical procedures like bleeding and purging. But after the period of apprenticeship, the fledgling doctor would return to medical school for another term, during which he took exactly the same seven courses as he had taken the first time. Interestingly, there was absolutely no distinction made between medical students taking their first or second term, although second-term students did write a thesis on some medical subject and then had to pass a final examination. Uh, He then received a degree and was able to practice wherever he could find patients. Before the Civil War, the most prestigious medical schools were located in Philadelphia and New York City. Many Southerners, as well as Northerners, of course, trained in these schools, although by the 1850s, a number of medical schools had been opened in the South, in Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, and New Orleans. But by the second year of the war, the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond was the only medical school still open in the Confederacy. As we mentioned a moment ago, even at the most prestigious medical schools, the curriculum didn't include any clinical or laboratory work. Uh, Not to get too graphic, but the era's doctors were trained to diagnose based strictly on observation, and they fixated on bodily fluids. Uh, A diagnosis was based on fluids produced by the patient, whether from mouth or bowels or from wounds, and the prevailing medical opinion was that this was the body working to rid itself of toxins and to cure what ailed it. So the doctors helped along that process, uh, because remember they believed like cures like, so the doctors helped along that process with substances to cause vomiting and also with purgatives to cause, uh, well, let's just say that those were very strong laxatives. Uh, But unfortunately, All of that usually served only to help the poor patient right along to the grave. We've already mentioned dysentery, but another deadly disease that doctors struggled to cope with during the war using those traditional cures was typhoid fever. This was a serious intestinal illness that afflicted many Civil War soldiers, resulting in a startlingly high fatality rate. It was caused by a certain bacteria which is spread through excrement, and so food and water could easily be contaminated with the bacteria as a result of poor sanitation, improperly located latrines, unwashed hands, or swarms of flies. The disease struck new recruits especially, and it tended to be most prevalent when the soldiers were in camp rather than on the march, and was known as a camp fever. 
Doctors back then didn't know the cause of typhoid, but most suspected the culprit was some type of sinister vapor in the air, what they called a miasm. Other doctors blamed exposure to bad weather, fatigue, improperly prepared food, or even the temperament of the patient. Only a small minority of doctors suggested contaminated water as a cause. But classic typhoid began with a fever accompanied by general fatigue and depression, and as the disease worsened, the victim suffered a headache, a back and muscle aches, and loss of appetite. Uh, diarrhea was often a symptom. The soldier might also have chills, delirium, a distended abdomen, and bronchitis, uh, possibly leading to pneumonia. Some patients developed rose-colored spots on their chest and abdomen. Typhoid had a lengthy incubation period and a long recovery time. Even a relatively mild case lasted several weeks, leaving the patient exhausted and requiring several more weeks to regain his strength. There were no effective or standard treatments for typhoid. Soldiers with typhoid might or might not be isolated in separate wards or tents. During the entire war, Union forces reported that just over 79,000 cases of typhoid fever with 29,300 deaths for a mortality rate of 37%. Although Confederate numbers are less complete, Confederate surgeon Joseph Jones calculated that typhoid accounted for one quarter of Southern deaths between January 1, 1862 and August 1, 1863. Typhoid caused problems not only for individual soldiers, but also for regiments and armies, sometimes rendering large numbers of troops ineffective. For example, in the summer of 1862, the 60th New York had to be sent away from the front, missing the Second Battle of Manassas because over 700 of its men had typhoid fever. But during the course of the war, the number of typhoid cases actually decreased, probably because the veteran soldiers developed immunity once they had had typhoid, although they could still carry and spread the disease for months or even years. And just a footnote, but it wasn't only soldiers who suffered typhoid fever during the war. The Lincoln's sons, Willie and Tad, contracted it in February 1862, most likely from contaminated drinking water drawn from the Potomac River. Tad recovered, but 11-year-old Willie died on February 20th in the White House. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Over the course of the Civil War, the medical departments of both the Union and Confederacy and the doctors serving in them learned how to deal with the massive numbers of casualties, both sick and wounded, produced by the conflict. But the doctors by themselves would have never been able to care for the needs of the thousands upon thousands of sick and wounded, of course, and so there was a vital role to be played by hospital stewards and nurses. And Tracy and I were surprised to learn that prior to the Civil War, nursing was almost exclusively a male domain. Back in the olden days, most nurses were guys because, apparently, many people considered it inappropriate for women to tend to the bodily needs of men to whom they were not related. During the Civil War, a mix of mostly untrained people served as nurses for the sick and wounded of both sides. They were mostly untrained because back then there were no professional nursing schools, and people simply learned by the experience of nursing. During the war, male nurses were often simply soldiers detailed to that duty, perhaps after a battle, but they were subject to recall to their regiments on short notice. Another group of male nurses were convalescing soldiers. That's because before the Civil War, recuperating hospital patients were expected to assist in caring for those sicker than they were, and this tradition was continued during the war. Unfortunately, these convalescents were inexperienced and in many instances too weak to perform the task assigned to them. Free blacks, both men and women, also worked as nurses. And in Confederate hospitals, slaves could be hired from their owners or impressed into service. A slave women who already had experience nursing their owners' families were particularly handy in caring for sick and wounded Southern soldiers. Women's good service in Civil War military hospitals stimulated the founding of nursing schools during and after the war, but at the start of the conflict, the only trained nurses were members of the Roman Catholic nursing orders, such as the Sisters of Charity. Early in the war, although many doctors, who were all men of course, didn't want women in their hospitals, they were more likely to accept nuns because they were used to following orders. But then, despite their initial resistance, many doctors came to appreciate female nurses because their wards tended to be cleaner and their patients often recovered better under the care of these surrogate mothers and sisters. The Confederacy had no official department to recruit female nurses, but the Union developed an official women's nursing corps directed by Dorothea Dix, who served as superintendent beginning in June 1861. She was very selective about the women chosen to be nurses, and the several thousand women employed by Dix worked mainly in the hospitals around Washington, D.C. 
but then many of the women who served in Union military hospitals did so independently of Ms. Dixis's auspices. In fact, in both the North and South, mothers, wives, and sisters who had gone to a hospital to care for a relative often remained working there after their patient had recovered or died. Other women simply responded to the need for nurses after a battle, or they desired to aid the war effort. Nurses could be of any social standing, but many of the women who served on both sides came from the middle and upper classes of society. A few women gained a measure of fame during the war because of their service as nurses. One such woman was Marianne Bickerdyke, known throughout the Union's Western Armies as Mother Bickerdyke. Originally from Ohio, she was a nurse and U.S. Sanitary Commission agent. Her service started in June of 1861 when Bickerdyke was chosen by her church to deliver supplies to hometown troops who were then in camp at Cairo, Illinois. After she arrived there, she proceeded to clean up the filthy hospitals, bathe the patients, and prepare more digestible food for them. Bickerdyke did anything she could to improve the health of the rank-and-file soldiers, and they in turn became devoted to her, calling her mother. She went along with the Union's Western armies throughout their toughest campaigns, earning the respect of both Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. Once, when someone complained about Mother Bickerdyke's forceful defense of the needs of the sick and wounded, Sherman famously responded that he couldn't oppose her because she outranked him, since she believed that God had called her to her work. And then Phoebe Pember was one of the South's unsung heroes. In late 1862, she accepted an appointment at Chimborazo, the Confederacy's largest hospital. Located at Richmond, the huge hospital was spread over 40 acres and contained nearly 150 wards. Before the war ended, 75,000 sick or wounded soldiers would be treated there. Pember was the first woman appointed to its staff. Her principal duty was overseeing food service for a division of more than 30 wards but she would visit the wards, making sure the soldiers were being properly fed and cared for, and sometimes as she made her rounds, she was called on to nurse patients who were in distress. In her memoir, A Southern Woman's Story, Pember related one haunting incident. One night, a young soldier recovering from a terrible wound to his hip screamed in pain, and she dashed to his bedside and found blood spurting from the wound. Apparently a splintered bone deep in the soldier's thigh had severed an artery, so she stopped the blood flow by applying pressure with her fingers above the wound and shouted for a doctor. But when the surgeon arrived and examined the wound, he shook his head. There was nothing he could do. When told of the hopelessness of his situation, the soldier looked up at Pember and asked, How long can I live? She answered, Only as long as I keep my fingers upon this artery. After a short silence, the soldier told her, You can let go. She later wrote, quote, But I could not, not if my life had trembled in the balance. Hot tears rushed to my eyes, a surging sound in my ears, and deathly coldness to my lips. End quote. For the only time in her years of hospital service, Pember fainted, and when she awakened, the young soldier's ordeal was over. Nursing was hard work, involving long hours. Nevertheless, many women of both sides served as nurses, as volunteers, entirely without pay. Many were motivated by their Christian faith to care for the sick and wounded soldiers. 
While tending to the soldiers, a number of women suffered serious illness as a result of their work. Some contracted diseases from their patients, while others collapsed from exhaustion, and although some were able to return to nursing, others found their health permanently damaged. Sadly, a number of them died because of their service. But for all of the women who served as nurses or matrons, their legacy was the devoted service they gave to the victims of war, to the sick and wounded soldiers, and the gratitude those men gave them in return. As we've already mentioned, at the time of the Civil War, medical knowledge about the causes of disease was extremely sketchy, so doctors and nurses attempting to care for sick soldiers were working under a severe handicap. It was only in the years following the war that germ theory and bacteriology would gain acceptance, and only then would medical science begin making real strides against disease. Uh, unfortunately, that was too late to help the Civil War soldier. We've already mentioned the two deadliest diseases that afflicted Union and Confederate soldiers, dysentery and typhoid fever, but several other diseases are also noteworthy for the impact they had on the war, reflected in the number of men who suffered from them. One of those is malaria. Malaria was a mosquito-borne disease prevalent in the South and parts of the Midwest during the Civil War, especially in the summer and early fall. Malaria was second only to dysentery as a cause of illness during the war. The Union armies recorded nearly one million cases. Thankfully, malaria didn't have a high mortality rate, but those who contracted it with its alternating of chills and fever were liable to a recurrence any time that the body's immune system was upset, and so as a consequence, many soldiers had periodic and sometimes prolonged absences from duty because of malaria. Many soldiers who contracted malaria didn't go to the hospital, but remained in their quarters when suffering an attack of chills or fever. Especially in the summer or early fall, and in particular locations, the fighting ability of armies on both sides was weakened because of the number of soldiers ill with malaria. Doctors during the Civil War knew that malaria could be treated successfully with quinine, and some physicians realized quinine could also be given to prevent the disease. However, the doses given for this were often too small or too inconsistent to be effective. The illness was also difficult to prevent because no one realized that mosquitoes spread it. Theories about the causes of malaria blamed sleeping in wet blankets, bad drinking water, and rapid climate changes. But most doctors thought the culprit was miasms or bad air from swamps, decomposing vegetation, and standing water. During the war, doctors realized that setting up camps in dry, elevated places, away from swamps and standing water, reduced the incidence of malaria dramatically. And so, for the wrong reason, these doctors suggested the right thing, that is, keeping the troops away from the mosquitoes' breeding grounds. Another disease that afflicted soldiers of both sides during the Civil War was pneumonia. Pneumonia is a serious disease of the lungs, often known as inflammation of the lungs. It involves one or both lungs filling with fluid, causing chest pain, cough, and inability to breathe properly. Pneumonia can be a complication of some other disease or the result of a bacterial infection. 
In many cases, pneumonia occurs because a weak or sick person is unable to take deep breaths when lying in bed in a single position. Some Civil War soldiers were diagnosed with typhoid pneumonia. This could mean that they had both diseases or that they had a serious lung infection as well as abdominal swelling. Overall, about one-quarter to 30% of Union soldiers who got pneumonia died from it. Confederate statistics are incomplete, but are probably similar. Like pneumonia, tuberculosis is another serious, contagious disease usually focused in the lungs. It affected many soldiers and civilians in the North and South during the Civil War. In the 19th century, tuberculosis was usually known as consumption, was quite common, and was very much dreaded. Tuberculosis was most often spread from person to person through coughing or sneezing. Unfortunately, doctors back in the olden days didn't realize that consumption was contagious, so they didn't isolate sufferers. And TB was second only to gunshot wounds as a cause of discharge from the army for white Union soldiers. 20,403 men were discharged because of the disease. Although a number of soldiers died in hospitals from consumption, many more likely succumbed after reaching home, and so their deaths would have gone unreported. Another deadly sickness that hit soldiers during the Civil War was smallpox. Once it was contracted, there was no effective treatment for smallpox, and so it was a very serious disease with a fatality rate of from 20 to 40 percent. Its symptoms included severe headache, high fever, general aches and pains, and possible delirium. However, the characteristic symptom was the pox, small red pus-filled blisters, which could appear on any part of the body. As the patient recovered, the pustules dried and formed a scab, which eventually dropped off, leaving a pitted scar. Some doctors called mild cases of the disease varioloid. Although smallpox could be prevented by vaccination, many people had not been vaccinated at the time of the Civil War. And despite vaccinations, there were several smallpox epidemics during the war years, especially in the Confederacy. The first broke out just after the Antietam Campaign in the fall of 1862. Then the Army of Northern Virginia and the citizens of Richmond suffered a second epidemic during the fall of 1863 and the following winter. In both instances, authorities tried to derail the epidemic by isolating the sick, quarantining the soldiers who had been exposed, and vaccinating soldiers and civilians. Although Union troops didn't experience smallpox epidemics to the same degree, except among African American soldiers, Washington, D.C. did suffer an epidemic in the fall of 1863 that peaked from December 1863 to January 1864. Many people were seriously alarmed and sought to avoid the contagion by staying away from such public places as theaters. President Lincoln contracted varioloid in November 1863 during this epidemic. Tracy mentioned smallpox in relation to black soldiers, and perhaps a word of explanation is in order with regard to that. Uh, You see, generally, a large portion of white Union troops had been vaccinated as civilians or were vaccinated after the Surgeon General gave orders that all soldiers should be vaccinated. And so white Union troops had about five cases of smallpox per 1,000 men every year. However, black troops, many of them contrabands, had evidently not been vaccinated as slaves, 
and many seem not to have been vaccinated when they joined the Union Army either. As a result, they averaged about 36 cases of smallpox per 1,000 troops per year. African Americans who joined the Union Army suffered severely from illnesses during the Civil War, as did white soldiers, North and South. But Rich and I were saddened to learn that because of racial discrimination, many black Union soldiers tended to have additional problems. Because of discrimination, many black regiments were stationed in unhealthy areas at the worst outposts. Some regiments also had difficulty getting doctors who were competent and willing to care for them. In some cases, black regiments had to make do with poorly trained hospital stewards as their only source of medical care. Also, few white women were willing to nurse black soldiers, although one notable exception was Esther Hill Hawks, who helped care for sick and wounded African American soldiers on the South Carolina Sea Islands, where her husband was the physician to the 1st South Carolina Infantry, the first regiment of blacks to be mustered into the U.S. Army. In general, the black soldiers fared better when treated in their regiment than when sent to a general hospital. One historian who has studied the mortality rate of black troops has determined that the death rate of black soldiers from disease was two and a half times the death rate for white soldiers with the same illness. One final thing Tracy and I wanted to be sure to mention,、uh, because both of us found it surprising, was how many Civil War soldiers suffered from common childhood illnesses such as measles, mumps, chickenpox, and whooping cough.、Uh, measles, especially, quickly spread through newly recruited regiments, both Union and Confederate, especially those units in which soldiers came from rural areas. And this is really what we found most surprising that it was the recruits from cities. And large towns that proved the most resistant to these classic common childhood diseases since they had already been previously exposed to the diseases. And so it was the hardy, healthy farm boys from rural areas who became sick when they joined the army, since they hadn't previously been exposed to the childhood diseases. When those recruits from rural areas arrived in a military camp and started to live in close proximity and in close contact with crowds of other people for the first time, Thousands upon thousands of them fell ill to these diseases that we think of as childhood illnesses. Measles epidemics were especially severe early in the war, when from one third to the majority of a regiment were affected. For example, 800 of the 1,200 men in one Confederate unit, the 12th North Carolina, contracted the disease. And then for the war as a whole, Union statistics showed a total of 76,318 cases in Northern armies, resulting in over 5,000 deaths from measles. Amazing. Well, as we start to wrap up this episode, we wanted to close by sharing this quote from a Confederate soldier from South Carolina. He was serving up in Virginia when he wrote home in 1861, saying, There's but one thing I fear much, and that is sickness, which is rapidly increasing in our ranks. There is more sickness in our regiment at this time than there has been, and there has been several deaths, for which, as I said before, we ought to be thankful that we have escaped so far, without being called to render up our account at the bar of God, away from amidst the many kind and loved ones at home. I often feel sad when I see a poor soldier lying upon his blanket, 
with none of the many comforts of which he has been used to at home, for I know they must feel bad. They have no one to feed and care for them in the camp amongst strangers, who can fill the place of a kind and an affectionate mother or sister, and I fear there are a great many that never know how to appreciate their kind until now. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, but y'all already know that it's the Encyclopedia of Civil War Medicine by Glenna Schroeder Lane. We will remind you that you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. If you listen to us through iTunes, the next time you're there, please consider taking a minute to give us a five-star review and also subscribing to the podcast. Those things will help other people discover the show on iTunes. Yeah, we actually uh, recently got our first one-star review on U.S. iTunes. And we'd already received a few less-than-favorable reviews before, uh, mostly from folks who have accused us of making the podcast unfairly biased in favor of the North, and they felt we slighted the South in various and sundry ways. But actually, this uh, one-star guy wrote a rather rambling review that slammed Tracy and I for, of all things, liking Abraham Lincoln too much, I guess. Well, you know what? If admiring Abraham Lincoln is a sin, then we're guilty as charged. So if that guy wanted to give us one star for that, then we'll take it. But there seem to be several of y'all who enjoy the podcast, and a few of y'all even made donations this past week. So we just wanted to say thank you to Jenny E. from the UK and Reuben E. from New Jersey for their support. And we appreciated Reuben's note about his personal connection to the Civil War. And then we also wanted to give a special shout out to Simon N., who we are going to proclaim as the podcast's number one fan in Australia. And he knows why. All right, well, like we said, this show was just the first part of our coverage of the medical aspects of the Civil War, and so next week we'll have part two, and we'll look at what happened to a soldier after he'd been wounded on the battlefield. But thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.